Welcome to the Grow Your Business podcast. Listen in as we discuss all things business, growth, and marketing with business owners, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs. And now, here's your host, founder of Roundhouse, the creative agency, Saul Edmonds. Oh, hi, everyone, and welcome to the Grow Your Business podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Greg Tower from Mount Roland Hazelnuts around the topic of organic produce in Australia. Greg, how are you going today? Yeah, good, Saul. Good to talk with you and look forward to a good chat today. Yeah, yeah, likewise. Is um, Just on a, on a nice... Uh, light weather related note what's what's the weather <laughs> what's the weather like down in on tasmania today in, in sunny tasmania yeah um well, it has been really good but today it's packed it in a bit unfortunately and we've got looking out the window now we've got um a totally gray sky with a few showers coming through and it's um it's feeling a bit more like winter than it has been so uh, i guess that's <laughs> where we're heading for so we better get used to it yeah yeah that's right it's it's generally pretty cold down there though isn't it like for uh, most of the year? Uh, it's, it's all relative, I suppose. It depends what you're used to and what you like. Um, personally, I, I love winter and enjoy winter a lot more than summertime. Yeah. Um, it's, um, it's generally a time when it, it is colder, yes, but you can have the fire going and you put on another jumper and um, you can actually really get into the sort of the indoors mode a bit through winter sometimes. Um, it's it's great. I, I really enjoy the winter, but um, I find summer times are too hot sometimes and too dry and there's too many snakes and there's too much worries about bushfires and all the rest of the stuff, whereas winter you haven't got all that stuff. So winter's nice. I like yeah, it. so more more pluses than negatives, plus you get to have a nice hot drink near the fire on occasion. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's, it's cosy, I think, and that's what Tasmania perhaps specialises in, that sort of cosy winter. I know, field. yeah. Quite, that's quite actually good. what... That's, that's always what I think. I'd, I'm not sure why, but um, I always think about that sort of environment when I think about Tassie, plus all the plus all the um, all the greenery and the yeah. and the beautiful landscape, which is pretty yeah. amazing. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. It's, it's very green at the moment. We've had a lot of rain through autumn, and the the grass is growing frantically everywhere, and it, you know, it's as green as green as green. So, wow. yeah, it's it's it's, it's and the landscape here is lovely. We live in a beautiful part of the world. So, um, yeah, so it's it's very 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 nice place to live. Really, no grumbles at all about living in Tasmania. <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, so we'll just I will just dive in. Just first of all, just with um, I guess a general outline of Mount Roland hazelnuts yourself history if you just want to give everyone a bit of yep. an overview of of what it's all about and I guess your role um, there as well sure yeah uh, so a bit of a part of the history of what we're doing here um, basically our farm is um, 50 acres 20 hectares or so uh, and it's uh, just outside Sheffield in northwest Tasmania um, and Sheffield is about half an hour inland from Devonport. So Sheffield is about halfway between Devonport, which is on the north coast, and Cradle Mountain. Cradle Mountain is sort of a further 30 minutes inland from us. So many people would be familiar with that. So we're sort of in, the, in between those two points, between the coast and the mountains. Mm. Uh, it's a farming area. Um, moved here in 2006. And um, because I've always had an ambition and a desire to, to be a to do something on a farm um, and in 2006 I thought well gee I'm getting a bit older here um, but at that stage I was uh, 46 I think and um, so we realised that farm is not a, an old person's game you need to get into it while you still got a healthy body <laughs> and a reasonably functioning mind um, and so we bought the farm in 2006 and then came here and thought okay so what's going to happen on this 50 acres of land um, uh, traditionally, it had been used for cattle mostly, uh, a bit of growing potatoes, things like that, but mostly for something which was more involved with uh, growing plants because that's been my passion and love for a long time. Um, so I um, looked around for the various options and after a little while researching things, come up with the, the idea of growing hazelnuts here. Um, there seemed to be a lot of um, reasons why it would work, but it hadn't really been done successfully in Tasmania up to that point, growing hazelnuts. Mm. So it was always a bit, bit, of a bit of a new venture, a bit of a pioneering thing to try and work out how exactly to do it and how it's going to work. Um, so in 2007, we started um, to planted um, 
200 trees and those nuts just to, as a trial, I suppose, to see what was going to happen because you just don't know really. And then after that first year, everything seemed to be going well. So I thought, oh, well, let's, let's just jump in and bite the bullet and just, just do it. So we then planted a further 1,000 trees in 2008. And that gave us a total of 1,200 over about three hectares. Mm. Uh, that is regarded as being sort of a commercial size for a hazelnut orchard. It's the size at which you start to get the economies of scale and you start to get the, the critical mass that you need to actually produce a commercial product. Mm. Um, so that was, that's been um, a gradual thing ever since that period, I suppose. It ta hazelnuts take a fair while to establish and to grow and to become um, bearing nuts. So it's really six or seven years after the first planting that you, before you really start to get anything decent in the way of a crop. And then in theory, after that time, it should just build and continue to build um, and, and until probably you reach your peak, maybe after 15 or 20 years. And, and then one of the great attractions of growing hazelnuts is that they're not an annual crop or anything like that. They grow perennially. So you go for a long time. So the trees might actually live for 50 or even 100 years quite viably and be productive for that period. Mm. So once you got through all the setting up phase and onto it, then the theory is that uh, then you'll have a, an annual crop coming in and that as the trees get bigger, there's in fact less work to do on them because they're more established and they're more settled. So that was the theory that you start to get um, a viable crop coming in every year and um, it's, um, it's, it's ongoing into the future. Um, the practice is not quite actually like that in <laughs> like that theory because uh, yeah. we've learned a lot along the way it's not not all as rosy and straightforward as that but th that's the basic premise and the other thing about hazelnuts were, were attractive to us was the fact that they are um that there's a really nice tree they're an interesting tree to be around they're different um they're um like for example they flower right in the middle of winter um, in July, and that's something which most plants don't. Most, most yeah, that's pretty unusual, isn't it? It is. It is, and um, it's um, it's it's just a, a weird thing. Um, and and they also produce their catkins, so which is the, the other part of their breeding cycle. Like they're already on the tree now in late May. So if, if you have your harvest in March each year, and then all the leaves drop off because they're deciduous, but through winter you've got these catkins going on, and you've got this flowering going on, and then. It's, it's, it's actually, the trees are quite interesting to watch and to be around and, um, and, and, and they're just a nice, nice environment to be part of and that, that, that's a very big attraction to working with hazelnuts as well. So that's the basic attraction for us, I suppose, and together with my partner Elizabeth, we've been um, growing them commercially now for, um, well, since about 2015, I suppose, is when it first really started to, to kick into being a commercial thing. Mm. And since then, we've been sort of developing and building and learning more, learning more, learning lots, and um, to get us where we are now in 2020. Yeah, I would imagine that these, you know, not having any, well, having having some experience in um, other parts of our family with people growing pineapples and yeah. macadamia nuts, I've, I've sort of had, had a little bit of exposure to some of that time frame that it takes two things and it's always been something that i kind of marveled at in the sense that you you there's quite a i guess a considerably long period where you just really have to nurture watch yep. and you have to make sure that things are growing in a certain way and that i guess um maybe the right word is that element of faith that it's all going to work out how <laughs> you plan it to work out? Blind hope, I think. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hope, yeah, hope or faith. Yeah, in in that that's gonna, I'm sort of work out. But then the once that hits that sort of point, and you've gone through this sort of process, it's always something that I've been really amazed at. And knowing that it's obviously a lot of hard work too, yeah. you know, to have to have to do that. And the from the initial planting of like so yeah. many trees. Yeah. Is the um in in the case of hazelnuts, what's the is is there a optimum sort of space that you have to have between the trees? Yeah, yeah, no, very much so, and that's all. Um, you know, there's a lot, a lot of knowledge that you need to know. You know when you're designing your orchards, I suppose, as to how you lay them out and how far between the rows, how far between the trees. Um, 
how much room do you leave at the end of each row for a tractor to turn around? Uh, critical, it's a really of course, yeah. Uh, how do you irrigate? Um, how do you fertilise? What sort of soil do you need? What sort of aspect do you need? Is it you know, sunny or sheltered? Um, should they be sheltered from the wind or is the wind a problem? Uh, all of these things are, are really, really, really vital. But when you're starting out and you're going to say, I've got this paddock and I want to plant some trees into it, these are things you don't know. Um, all, all this all this stuff about you know, how far between the rows and how far between the trees, how many trees to the hectare, that's, if you get it wrong at the start, then you you really you've you sort of done it. You know, you've gone backwards <laughs> exactly. and you go forwards. So it's really critical that at the start you talk with people who've already been in the industry, or you um, somehow do your research to find out the answers to these questions, and you plan appropriately. Um, it's it's a really um, a challenging thing, especially in a like in a, a relatively new industry like hazelnuts in Australia. I mean, they've been growing hazelnuts in Turkey and in Italy and in France and even in Oregon in the US uh, for a long time and they've worked out how to do things in those environments. But the Australian environment is different and peculiar and even Tasmania is different to the mainland. So you've got to work out how it works in your local environment. So you have, certainly you have to do all your research at the start and come up with the answers as best you can, but there'll still be, as we found, gaps that you just can't answer because no one's done it here locally. And that's where the risk comes in because the things may work for you and it's great if they do, but there's also things that can go wrong. And that, that's a very real part of any new enterprise. It's a risk you take. You have to be prepared to take that risk. And uh, it's a dual fold risk because the other part of what you're missing is about the lead time between the planting and the crop return. Mm. Uh, we're talking at least seven or eight years and maybe more, probably more, and I liken it to having a part-time job working maybe three days a week for maybe 10 years without any return whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. It's taking your time. It's taking a lot of money. You're putting a lot of investment into it, but there's no guarantee at all that you're going to get any return from it whatsoever. And that, that is a risk, and you have to be a wee bit crazy perhaps to do that sort of thing. No, it's much safer to go and do something which is conventional, regular, and normal, and like get a job somewhere, and um, mm. and do it that way. But to, to take on a risk, you have to be a sort of a person who enjoys having a um, trying new things and is prepared to sort of. But when the problems come up, as invariably they do, you have to have a strategy in place to be able to work through the problems that come along. Because there's problems every well, all the time. There's new things occur which you haven't thought of, and problem solving is one of the key skills you need to have. Yeah, is the uh, would you say too? Just on, I guess that topic of of things that arise too. Are there any specific um, pests or, or certain insects that are specific to your to Tasmania and your area that you've had like ongoing little, you know, uh, well, yeah. let's say say wars or sort of I mean, things that you've had to problem solve with that keep on. Um, cropping up all the time especially given that um things are being done organically and you're not yes. and and it's going to be um a different sort of approach could you tell us like a little bit about like in in that context to how you handle some of those issues yeah yeah no it's a really good question and um it's it's very true um now that what the word you mentioned organics that's that's what we're trying to do and that's we're trying to grow hazelnuts commercially in an organic way and as far as we know we're the only um, commercial scale organic hazelnut orchard in australia so uh, not only have we the challenge of producing a crop which is relatively new to australia in hazelnuts but we're trying to do that in a in a what seems to be a unique way in australia growing organically so mm. two layers of complexity and challenge associated with that and that's significant. I guess well, one of the obvious things from the up until now, and perhaps later on I can talk about one of the current challenges we've got, but up until now, one of our biggest challenges is that here in northwest Tasmania, we've got really fertile soils, we've got really good rainfall, and it's a great place for grazing cattle and sheep, which is what this property has historically been doing. But the, the grass growth is, presents a problem for hazelnuts. It's great for cattle, but for hazelnuts, hazelnuts don't really like grass competition that much. So then the, ch 
think the, the question is, well, how do you create an environment where the hazelnuts aren't competing with the grass uh, in this dense pasture because the grass can just choke them? So um, in conventional hazelnut orchards and in most of the orchards you see around, whether it's macadamias or, or bananas or whatever, I think most people control the grass around the plant by applying a herbicide, uh, usually glyphosate, Roundup. Mm. And they out the grass, and so what you see is a row of trees, maybe with grass between the between the rows, but down the row you see bare soil, and that's been sprayed out with Roundup to achieve that, and that means the tree doesn't have to compete with grass, so it'll do a lot better from that point of view. Um, but being an organic grower, um, we don't have the option of using glyphosate in that way, and we don't want to use it either for, for other reasons, but. It's, it's not, not, not an option available to us. So we have to work out ways of managing the grass so that it doesn't impact negatively on our hazelnuts. That's been mm -hmm. a real challenge and an ongoing one. And we've, we've been working through that ever since we planted the trees, really. And there's many ways we, we've tried to tackle that. Um, but it's, it, it's a real challenge. And for conventional growers of hazelnuts, it's not such a challenge. But for us, it's a huge issue. Yeah. And, and have you got then, you know, with that... In mind too, because you're not using, um, say, herbicides and insecticides. Are there things, um, say, specific to other plants that you might use in um, with within the orchard, without to sort of either discourage certain insects from coming in or encouraging other ones as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a that's a huge part. To, it's a really um, powerful question. That one. Well, uh, our approach in organic sense is to try and work in with nature, um, whereas in a conventional farming model, generally you try and tame nature. You try and make things do what you want them to do. So if you had a um, say an aphid problem, you would say we don't want an aphid problem, so we'll come through with a pesticide and we'll spray it through the orchard and we'll try and kill the aphids that way so that they're not damaging our crop. That's that's the conventional model of doing it. In, in our organic model, we say we try and create the environment in which balance can be produced. So we try really hard to have a have a range of biodiversity on the farm so that nothing gets majorly out of whack. There's, there's no sort of major um, population explosions of aphids or bugs or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, we try and have a rich biodiverse environment so that if we do start to get the aphids coming in in October when they come, we've got this uh, other insects which are already part of your system and they of themselves say, ah, aphids, let's go and eat the aphids because we love eating aphids. So mm -hmm. for us, that's ladybirds. Um, they are part, oh, right, of, yeah. part of biodiversity set up and they love eating aphids. So rather than going and spraying for the aphids, we try and do things which will encourage the population of ladybirds so that the ladybirds can control the aphids. And that's worked really well for us over the time we've been here, such that we've never had to spray anything for any, um, any pesticide type of things um, because we've got a a rich and diverse environment, which sort of self-regulates. It's sort of, if there's a surplus of one thing, something else will come along and manage that surplus. And it's actually worked really well. And that's one of the key principles, I think, of organic growing, is that you, you have a, a biodiverse environment, which hopefully will self-manage in the long term. Yeah, I think yeah. that's, like, I, I've got a, that question i guess sort of came also out of our, a current interest that we have in in our sort of homeschooling about um observation of nature in general but um specifically with uh insects there was a um a fellow that we're just looking into right now john Henri fabray who who was a uh french um a French fellow who who had a series of books about about insects in particular, but their observation and the sort of the power well, is it's quite obvious in his writings about the power of just observing things and seeing what they do. You know, apart yes. from the fact that you would you know if you've got existing knowledge, but then I mean, like you were saying, if you've you've got I mean, ladybirds, or if you had um, a particular species of of ant like. I mean, I don't know, like uh, the jumping jack ant that's yeah. down there. Um, 
and it was a problem for some reason that you would, you know, through, I guess, observation and learning from other people, you know, you can over time form like a really powerful um, library of information about what, how things engage with each other. And there's both then obviously for you too, like even, even on the subject of once you know those things and you know how they work, they can be, I would, I would, I would theorize they'd be even more powerful than just simply spraying things because you've got other things that are actually doing the work for you. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a, that's a really good observation. I think it's very true is that, um, like a, a I mentioned a little while ago that, that grass was our historical problem, but we've got a new problem emerging for us now, which is funnily, it's a sort of ironic problem in a way, um, is we've had problems with birds who have been sort of um, trying to eat some of our hazelnuts when they're almost ripe on the trees. Now, this is a problem which anyone with fruit trees would be familiar with. Is, um, you, know, you have your lovely tree of apricots there ready Ready, and they're all ripening beautifully and you're there watching them and think they're not quite ripe yet they'll be ripe in another three or four days and I'll, I'll go out there in three or four days and I'll pick them and you go out there in three or four days and you go to pick them and they're all gone <laughs> <laughs> and because the birds are watching them as well and and they, they they got up earlier than you that day and they went in and ate them all while you were still sleeping in bed and now you've got no apricots and an empty tree uh, with a few feathers scattered around it and so that's that's another problem which um, you know, comes around. And it, so the question is, well, how do you manage that problem? How, how do you do that? And that's where mm-hmm. observation of birds and observation of the patterns of things and the way things behave is critical. Um, we've had this year a bit of a problem with white cockatoos. And people say, oh, how do you control those? Well, my answer to that question is, you, first off, you observe them, get to know them, understand what they're doing, how they're doing it, why they're doing it get to know their patterns and their habits. For instance, here we observed that the cockatoos um, fly past our property heading south about 8 in the morning mm. and, they, and, and they fly back home heading northwards um, about 6 o'clock at night. This was through our harvest time. And so we surmised that they must have had a, a home base, if you like, a roost or a nesting tree somewhere north of us. And every day they'd come to work like commuters and they would fly past our property and they'd go to all the farms down here and they'd do their day's work and at the end of the day they'd fly back home again. So you had these two peak times when if you want to interrupt what um, cockatoos can do in your orchard, if you were there first thing in the morning when they're flying past, they wouldn't stop because they knew you were there. Um, So they'd go on to someone else's property, lucky them. But um, at the the end of the day, the same, they were going home from work, but... um, going home to their roost tree again but if you were there at that time between five and six of an evening again the cockatoos would see you and they wouldn't come in but if you weren't there they would drop in and they'd check it out and they'd look at it and they'd start to make an impact so for us those so a control mechanism worked out by observation of the birds habits and trying to manage that and to so we could achieve the maximum um, impact on the birds presence here just by not being there all day, but just being there at those two specific times in the day to try and protect the trees from the birds. And that yeah. actually really well for us this year, that model. Yeah, I think there's there's certainly something that, um, I don't know about you, but when, when I would generally think about organics, even though I've got a different perspective, I'd, I would imagine most people when they think about what what that even means is they certainly wouldn't be thinking about what, you've just been talking about they, the, yeah. the, the bigger picture of, of then how whatever crop, you know, is being grown fits in with the um, surroundings. They would probably just be thinking, I mean, I, I, I could be wrong here, but I would assume most people are really just thinking, well, there's not use of, you know, herbicides yeah, or exactly. in, insecticides, but they don't realize that there's, they, there's a far bigger, far more interesting sort of picture, which yeah. I find like in, in our own little kind of like humble way, trying to grow things, realizing that uh, certain little friends in the yard, you know, like to eat certain things. Some don't, some hang around in a certain way and some, you know, how, how they respond to things. Like, I mean, can you control things with encouraging other sorts of spiders to be in the area? Yeah. 
and you know which which is you know from my perspective is a like a incredibly interesting and and really powerful type of knowledge to have too yeah. you know on its own on its own kind of um yeah merits but obviously the bigger picture when you're doing organic farming is is kind of crucial to the survival of it really isn't it yeah no it's, it's absolutely it's it's it's, it's, it's probably the most important thing about the difference between growing organically and growing in the conventional way, um, it, and it's 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 very real. It's um, it it's a completely different mindset. The two things, even though uh, two people could be two enterprises could be trying to grow hazelnuts commercially, one grows it conventionally, one grows it organically. But the, but there's so many, so many huge differences between the way the two operators will look at their activities and. Um, uh, it's it's a very very different mindset, such almost to the extent that it's like you're doing two completely different things. It's two, two completely different processes. In the first one, conventional farming, like I said, you try and manipulate everything so that it's you, know, you put on the right amount of this element in your fertilising, and you give that amount of water, and you do this to protect you from um, insects, and you do that to protect you from birds, and so on. Um, uh, whereas an organic grower really tries to see the picture, um, as, see nature as it is in its totality, I suppose, and then tries as best as they can to fit in with that and to, to work in with that. Not, not trying to control nature, but to try and work with nature. And to work with nature, you have to be very aware of nature and understand it. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very different head, headspace, if you like, than the conventional farming model. It's quite different. And, I find I've got much more in common, for example, with other organic growers, whether they're growing pumpkins or whether they're growing um, uh, lavender or whether they're growing pears. You know, I've got much more in common with other organic growers than I have with other hazelnut growers who are growing conventionally. Um, the organic mindset is, is very different, and that's where we spend a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. Growers. I guess is is the um, is the hazelnut industry at large, say in Australia, I mean, let alone the organic hazelnut industry, is is that quite a niche sort of industry? Would you say? Uh, yeah, I would say that it's at that stage still where it's very much a niche industry, although it's changing and changing fairly rapidly. Um, up until probably twenty years ago, there was very little going on with hazelnuts. There've been a few sort of isolated um, activities here and there, mostly probably in Victoria and Beechworth and in New South Wales, around Orange, um, Mudgee, that sort of area. Evening up north, as far as Tenderfield, I think there'd been a bit going on around there. But it had all been fairly exploratory and it was not of any real scale. And almost all of our hazelnuts were imported from international sources, mostly from Turkey. But in the last 20 oh, years, wow. the industry has started to sort of, people saw there was a potential for it and it started to gain a bit of a foothold and it started to, to grow from being just a cottage industry to being a commercial industry. And that process is still underway. Um, and there's now um, uh, uh, a growing production of hazelnuts in Australia, but it's still quite small um, re relative to what we import. I think we import 20,000 tonnes a year from Turkey mostly. But our local... It's a lot of hazelnuts. Yeah, yeah, it is. And a local production might be 2,000 tonnes, you know. Oh, really? So much like, wow, that's a lot, isn't it? There's a huge, huge difference. further increase here in, in to be able to supply our Australian market with hazelnuts. There's a lot of potential there. People have seen that, said, let's try and do it. And that's where we're up to at the moment. The big change that's happened in the last couple of years, uh, probably five years, is that um, the people that make um, those lovely chocolates with, which specialise in hazelnuts that we see all around us in supermarkets, the Ferrero Rocher, most of us mm. are familiar with those. Um, they um, are a European company, um, but they have expanded into Australia in recent years because they wanted to be able to guarantee a year-round supply of hazelnuts. So uh, obviously it's off-season in the North Hemisphere to here. So mm. they've, they've set up a, a very large establishment um, in New South Wales, Coonabarabin, I think it is. Is that right? Um, and they've actually planted a million trees in the last time. A million. Years. Oh my gosh. Huge to me. No, huge. And um, so that's 
but that's only fairly recent. So those trees are still growing, wow. coming into production. And over the next 10 years, that'll be a major change. And that, that they're definitely the biggest players in growing hazelnuts in Australia. Um, how well they'll go is another matter altogether. But they've obviously got lots of resources, lots of knowledge, lots of international experience and lots of cash. And that means that um, I'm sure we're all sitting back and watching and seeing how they're going to go into the future. But that may be the thing which turns the Australian industry from a cottage industry into a full-on commercial industry. Yeah, sometimes it just sometimes it just does take somebody who's already well known to to um, raise the level of exposure in a certain area, really, doesn't it? Like it's yeah. it's a like it happens. Um, can't think of any other specific examples off the top of my head, but in in all sorts of industries, whether it's selling products or or offering certain services, things yeah. that are one-time niche, all of a sudden become, um, I guess you know more in the yeah. popular mindset. Yeah. Even though, I mean, I I love. I mean, personally, I, I kind of love anything relating to hazelnuts. Yeah. I love like yeah, any any of the. Um, in fact, I'd probably go so far as to say I like, you know, them more than having chocolate without hazelnuts. Okay, like, big statement, so. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I'm, I'm I'm putting it out there, but I I have actually. I know when I say that, people are like, "Oh, really? That's that sounds kind of very specific." But yeah. you know, but. Yeah. And it's out there, like it's, it's actually been out there for a long time. You know, yeah. people don't really, I guess, um, sort of think about it. But um, as, as, far as, as far as like other um, exposure that you, you know, want to have for Mount Roland as well and things that you've had um, in the past, like different things that, you do to actually tell people about what you do and the sort of products from yeah. from your hazelnuts that you um, offer to people. What sort of things have you got on offer that people can, you know, buy or if they're down there in that local area that they can experience? Yep. Yeah. yeah, no, that's right. We've, it's one thing to grow things. It's another thing to be able to sell the things that you grow and that, I think that's one of the challenges of being a, a farmer um, for whatever, but you need to be across a wide range of skills. You need to be able to grow things successfully, but you also need to be able to market them in some way and sell them. And then it, then it all comes into packaging and labelling and graphic design, as, as you'd know. All mm-hmm. that game is part of what we do as well. And, and for us, our whole business model is built around web sales. So we have a web page. Um, from and a shop on that web page, and that is how we get our product awareness, if you like, out to the Australian market specifically is what we target. Mm. So, and that that that's worked well for us. Um, it's been a good thing. Um, we find that being, especially being organic, um, means that and, and the only ones in Australia is there a lot of people out there. I mean, it's not something everyone does every day, and most people probably never even think about it. But there are some people out there in the Australian market who would really like to, say, produce um, organic chocolate-coated hazelnuts, for example. Mm. Um, And we do get inquiries from these sort of people who are existing uh, confectioners um, that have not been able to source organic hazelnuts in Australia. They really want them, but they haven't been able to source them. So um, there is a big market for that because, as you pointed out, hazelnuts and chocolate are a well-known phenomenon. The The two things go really well together. Um, and some people um, you know, are, are very keen on those, and Carrera Rocher have made a whole industry out of just that combination. So for us to get our knowledge of our products out there, uh, that's where we have our webpage, and we sell on that. Um, up to this point, we've been selling um, probably two or three things. One is we sell the hazelnuts um, cracked, so that we just sell the kernel, and we package those up into... Um, kilo bags, two kilo bags, five kilo bags, and we post those. Uh, we get an order in from our webpage. We crack the nuts to that order so they're fresh, and we post them off the next day, and we post them by express post. And so if you put an order in in Brisbane today, uh, in two days' time, we could have the nuts to you freshly cracked in a package delivered to your door. Mm. Model. And 
that works really well for customers, whether they be um, individual customers as uh, people buying for their own family to eat or whether it's for a restaurant or a cafe to use on their menu in some sort of dish that they're making or for bakers who want to have uh, produce batches of cookies or whatever it is every month. Um, they can order from us and do it that way. So that model has worked really well for us, just selling raw kernel to the Australian market. It's been very good. Um, but in recent times, we've been trying to experiment more with the value adding side of it and to add a range of products to our portfolio. So one we've established last year was um, production of hazelnut oil. Um, which is, again, that's a very niche product. And people say, well, what's hazelnut oil and what do you use that for? Well, mm. most people simply wouldn't know that because it's a very, it's a very esoteric sort of knowledge, I suppose. But hazelnut oil is a product which has very exciting and valuable products, uh, uh, very um, qualities, I should say. Um, hazelnut oil is very useful, just like olive oil is used in the kitchen for a whole range of things. You can use hazelnut oil for nearly all of those products those uses in the kitchen. So it's, it's a very useful and versatile oil product that has um, a range of applications and it gives a distinctly nutty flavour to say for salad dressings, things like mm. that. Really quite delicious and sought after, but in a minority niche sort of way. So that, that's one use for hazelnut oil has been in that, but the other big use for hazelnut oil and it's the one where we see the most potential is as a skin care product. Um, hazelnut right. is an amazing skincare properties. It's a very good moisturiser and a skin rejuvenator. So oftentimes it's used as a massage oil uh, or used in massages. Uh, it can be used in that as, a, as an oil which, in, which improves the tone of the skin. Um, but also it can be used by beauticians and by naturopaths in, in making healing balms for the skin. And that's, that's, we see that as being a really exciting um, direction for us to go into the future and making more hazmat oil, which can be used in that way. Um, yeah, no, that sounds great. There's, I've, I've sort of noticed just in, in shops in general, there seems to have been an increase in um, other sorts of oils being offered, whereas there wasn't, yeah. wasn't previously. There's sort of just a general observation, even in I mean, places like, Woolworths of having avocado yeah. oil and, and yeah. other other types of oil. So, I, I mean, I kind of take from that that certain things that used to be more niche, yes. I um, I think generally like have a bit of a personal theory about things that are niche in, in general is that they'll always go through some sort of cycle of once being niche and eventually will become more more popular at, at yeah. some point and yeah. i mean they might not be as popular as other things but eventually they will because people will find out i mean like you said they'll find out often then through means that are, are, are more popular or have more exposure just how good they are and yeah. then all of a sudden there'll be you know and um explosion it was yeah. it was interesting um we did a um uh, we worked with some people to develop a website a number of years ago who have a really interesting podcast called The Pass, which is all about the um, uh, the restaurant industry in Australia. And I mean, some of Australia's I mean, our most well-known chefs talking about food and you know and all those things. And one of the things that cropped up all the time in that from from chefs was their um, importance that they placed on fresh produce and for a lot yeah. of them then a produce that was organic and yeah. one of the topics that that would you know you'd hear every now and again with them discussing was was how and where and the issues that they had actually sourcing sourcing these things of yeah. like how to how to find them and it wasn't you know it wasn't always easy so you know for I mean, for someone like yourself, I would imagine that's that's in very high demand, certainly from certain people yeah. in, in the restaurant industry. Would that be right? Yeah, no, that's that's exactly it. Um, it's um, it's it's a very real thing. Um, uh, if you think about it, up until fairly recent times, most of the hazelnuts that people have been consuming in Australia 
And in fact, it still applies now. Still, most of the hazelnuts that people consume in Australia were actually grown in the Northern Hemisphere mm. and have been brought down to Australia by one means or another and then become available to the market in Australia. Um, but very So that means that you know, most of the nuts, say, are grown come from Turkey. They grow fantastic nuts in Turkey. But the, the logistics of getting stuff from Turkey to here in Australia in bulk means that it generally comes by sea in a shipping container uh, and it, that journey takes some time. Um, it also, in that journey, crosses the equator and so it goes through a climate of quite high temperatures and maybe even high humidity for a period as well. Unless that container is refrigerated, you've got to think about, well, how is that impacting on the quality of the nut by the time it gets to Australia? Mm. And it, it, it can vary. Um, but what I think a lot of people have experienced is they've eaten hazelnuts in Australia and they said, oh, I don't really like those that much. They're not that great. And, and that's because they're tasting a product which is quite old in lots of cases. It's not yeah, necessarily yeah. fresh. And that's our market niche is that we say, okay, we'll crack them. You order today. We'll crack tomorrow. We'll post tomorrow and you'll get them the next day. People find that that's a whole new experience in eating hazelnuts that they have not had experience of before. And when they eat our hazelnuts, they say, oh, I didn't know hazelnuts tasted like that. That's <laughs> quite different from <laughs> what we used to. And it, it, that's, that's very real. And especially in the restaurant game or in the catering game, that sort of edge, if you like, um, is, 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 is very powerful. Um, and it's, um, it turns something which was sort of an average dish or not even a good dish into something which is quite, quite amazing. And that's, that's where we try and fit ourselves into it. So that's why I think there's a big future for, um, potentially in the future, for growing fresh produce here in Australia, hazelnuts especially, which um, can be enjoyed fresh by the local um, consumers. I think that's, that's where we're trying to fit into it. And the whole organics thing is another layer, again, on top of all that. So you know, there's, there is, you can see from that, I think that there's potential for the industry to grow quite a lot here. And it's really quite exciting for what could happen in the future. Yeah, sure. Um, am I right in in saying that that Mount Roland Hazelnuts had had some exposure some years ago on uh, MasterChef? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My three seconds of fame, I think it would count to. Um, um, yeah, I've been watching MasterChef this year again. It's, it's all go at the moment on the tellies, as as you'd probably be aware. Uh, yeah. But yeah, no, we we. Well, I guess. Goes back a little bit before then. Perhaps I can just go back a little bit to, mm. to say how we got onto MasterChef. Was um, well, we we thought with there's food awards and food competitions and things like that. We thought not really so keen on the idea of food awards. You know, I can understand how how you can have uh, competitions for running 100 metres quickly or for playing tennis or something like that. You know, you've got ways of measuring someone's faster than someone else, and so they get to the finish line, so they're the winner. But how do you actually judge food quality? And is that more than a subjective thing? Is it, are there actually objective standards which you can apply to the judging of this food is better than that food and this one gets a gold medal and that one doesn't get a gold medal? So we're a little bit dubious and sceptical about how that whole process works, but we thought, oh, look, look okay, we'll, we'll throw our head into the ring and we'll see if we can um, enter a competition with our hazelnuts and we'll see what comes of it. So we did the Australian Food Awards I think it was 2016. Um, first time we'd ever done it. Didn't know how it was going to work. Um, thought, oh, well, we'll have a crack and we'll see what happens. And amazingly enough, um, we not only got a gold medal for our produce at that food award, but we actually were judged to be the best in class of all the nut products in Australia. Mm. And um, I thought, okay, this is pretty amazing. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how this has happened, but um, it's great that we were recognised Australia-wide for producing the best that product in Australia. That was for our kernels. Um, and so uh, that was a, a pretty amazing um, outcome for us and we were obviously really pleased by it. Mm. What we did was create a whole bunch of publicity around our product and MasterChef people are always on the lookout for, for things like that. And so they saw uh, what we'd achieved and they said, oh, would you like to bring some of your nuts over to Melbourne and be part of a, a show? Um, produce show for the MasterChef and we thought well that sounds pretty exciting Let's, yeah. Be a, yeah, so, so, so we, we took five kilograms of our kernels over to, to Melbourne um, and um, were invited 
on, appeared on a, on a MasterChef edition there, and that was um, really good publicity for a product, obviously. It's a very powerful thing. A lot of people watch MasterChef, and uh, it actually um, raised the profile of our products enormously, and we've had a lot of um, ongoing um, um, sales because of that. Um, and a lot of ongoing recognition because of that. So master, things like MasterChef, cooking shows generally, are really powerful in the Australian market these days for food. Yeah, no, that's right. I'm, like I, I, I think also like the fact that the, I mean, your produce is obviously absolutely fantastic, but then you've got, you know, you've got that mix of where, um, you know, people who are making food and using produce, then the methods and the um, and the exposure that that has, but the methods that they have to craft it into some amazing kind of dish. Given that you know the the industry as a whole, like has has such exposure and, and has has now for many years, like the um, the restaurant and the food shows and I mean celebrity chefs is such a big thing and has been for yeah. such a long time now. You know, I think it's a great you know it's a perfect mix, really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, a combination of you know um and finding um like i was saying before like that the importance that that many chefs and restaurants place on their suppliers on, yes. on where they supply it but not only that but then the their kind of how their brand and their their ethics yes um how how similar they are too yeah yeah, no, that, that's that's really true. It's, it's the whole drive is now people trying to understand where their food's coming from. It's been really big. And for us, I mean, if you, if you look at a, go to the supermarket sometimes and you see a packet of nuts and you think, okay, there they are in a little plastic bag sitting on a shelf, but where have they come from? And it's, you really, yeah, you can perhaps work it out. There might be some, some indications on the labelling as to where it's come from, but oftentimes that, that um, information is fairly vague and non-specific. Mm. And it doesn't, um, you know, you don't, you don't really know much about them. I think that's one of our strengths in our business model, and it's one of the strengths for an online model, in, particularly in our modern world now, which is what a lot of, lot of agricultural producers are doing, is that you can produce a web page and you can provide to the consumer, the customer, the whole story of where this product has come from, and they can see it for themselves. And they can see pictures of the, the actual trees in the orchard where this nut that they're eating has come from. Mm. And they can trace it through. And that, I think, adds not only a whole lot of interest from the consumer's point of view, they've got a story that goes with the product, mm. but it also gives them a lot of um, comfort, I suppose, in seeing that, okay, these people are certified organic um, and this is how they grow their trees and there's, that there's no sprays being used on that and that there's the soil tests which validate that experience. Um, and... Um, you know, we know that these were harvested in March of 2020 and they were harvested from this paddock on those rows even, and we can tell them that, and we can show them a picture of the tree that the nut came from, more or less. And it's, yeah. it's a whole product, and it's also the history of the grower, I think, comes into it. People like to link and Absolutely. connect with the growers, uh, and they can get a pretty, pretty quickly a sense of credibility or not attached to that grower, and they can assess for themselves, is this something I would like to feed my family with or is this something I prefer to leave on the shelf and I think that extra information is very valuable and it's what a lot of people particularly those who are, in, who are very conscious of their health are very very interested in making those connections and buying products which they can help they have of themselves vetted and they understand where they're coming from and how they got to the plate on the family table yeah no that's right I think that that's you know the idea of of a of just a a story in general not even a powerful story is is like how um is how i mean since the beginning of i guess human civilization it's how people communicate it's how people express ideas and you know certainly from a marketing perspective it's 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 a it's a key way to you know to express to people what you're about you can do that visually but then um or you can you know tell people that you're great but ultimately if you weave it into some form of story that you know shows the history and gives people like a great understanding of of 
not only, you know, how you do things, but then why you're doing it is yeah. a, um, yeah, I suppose that's where people are able to, even without, you know, meeting you personally, if you can build some sort of relationship yes. with somebody, like even through your website, through those things you were talking about, and then they have, um, you know, the opportunity to actually experience your product. And then that's, and they're like, wow, that, you know, that first part of the experience matches up completely with what I received. And these, yeah. these hazelnuts are, uh, you know, absolutely fantastic. That's, you know, it's a really powerful tool, you know, yeah. just from on, on a range of levels, like on, on the simple marketing level, but also, you know, you being able to, able to tell people and have the independence to do that, which I think is, is really important, like for any, any business to have that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's really true. And that's, it's, um, I think we've got to see our place in the world for what it is. And we, and I think most organic producers would be the same, um, are generally niche producers. You're not producing a huge volume product. You're not producing, you haven't got, hundreds of acres of hazelnut trees going on. You've got a, a, a relatively uh, a commercial amount, yes, but not a, a huge amount. Um, and so that way you can keep in touch with the products um, on, on a, a quite personal level. You know what's going on really mm. intimately. Um, and uh, oftentimes, too, um, uh, organic producers, um, it, it takes a lot more physical and manual work and hands-on stuff to, to deal with. Uh, the crop that you're producing, you don't just get hop in your tractor and go down the row and spray things out. For example, you, you got to, lots, lots of things have been done by hand. We harvest by hand, uh, for example, rather than use big machines. So all this um, means that you, you you do struggle to produce volumes, I suppose, and that's why we have conventional agriculture because that produces the volumes of food that need to feed the vast number of people that are in the world today. Mm -hmm. but there's always a question of well, organics is all very nice, but can you actually produce the volume to feed the planet? And that's a really good question. And it's a very yeah, interesting yeah. But I think for the moment, though, we're just trying to produce a product. Not, we're not trying to feed the planet because that's beyond what we can personally do. But we're trying to produce a good product which is um, produced as ethically and sustainably and as healthily as we possibly can. And I think that's the niche which um, organic producers fit into. And it will never be a large volume for us because there's only 24 hours in a day and there's so much work you can do. And so the, the size of your orchard is limited by the amount of time you've got to manage it. And so for us, we'll always be fairly small producers compared to the big guys, but our quality hopefully will, will be high. And if we can make those direct links to our customers, then that not only makes for a good retail chain, if you like, but it also makes and this is really important for us, makes for a higher quality of life where we feel connected to not only what we're growing, but also to the people who are consuming our product at the end of the day. We, we have personal connections with all that stuff and that, I think, enhances what we're doing. Oh, well, you, you completely answered my next question, Greg. In, in, in that, Sorry. <laughs> which was great because I, I was actually going to say in, in sort of... I'm um, yeah, wrapping up. I was actually going to say um, um, the question was going to be that even though I feel that we've, you know, you've explained quite well um, things relating to organic farming and organics as, as a whole, I was just going to ask for like a wrap up in terms of, um, you know, why you kind of chose, chose that path in the yeah. first place, but you answered that really well. Like that's, you know, it's obviously I, I guess one um, analogy that kind of pops into my head about about those two different about say if you were going to go organics versus normal farming. I mean, right yep. now where people are using various chemicals is that in some ways for me the idea itself conceptually of organics is more of a partnership with the the environment as yeah. opposed to maybe something like uh, a slave master mentality, yeah. Yeah. you know, that you're, yeah, you've got yeah of yeah. that you're, I'm, I'm, I have to control things. Yeah. And in order to do that, I have to make them work a certain way. And if they don't, I'll force them into that yeah. as opposed to going, you know, I'm going to, I'm like we were saying before, we'll see what, 
what is there, observe how it works currently and fit in with that because yeah. ultimately, because I, I think the assumption is that that you need to control things because, you know, there's a um, there's that kind of idea that always seems to be cropping up in, you know, with people and various things that you need to control nature and that you yeah. need to you need to harness it and you need to make it do something because it's scary or it's yeah. you know you can't control it but the reality like in in many things that I've I've had exposure to I find it's the exact opposite and it's yeah. actually even even time saving like once you know how yeah. how things work yeah. it's like you know you can you just need to fit in with it and it does yeah exactly what it's meant to do because it's been doing that all along. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's a really critical point and that is the essence of, to me, what it's about to grow organically is, is just that it's, it's, it's fitting in with nature rather than trying to dominate it. And, um, that's, um, you know, it's a, it's a very different headspace and I think it's one towards which, um, we'll, we'll see a lot more of in the future. Um, I think there's been a trend in the past to, to, for industries to just keep on getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, we see that in lots of industries where they start off with a whole bunch of small operations and they get amalgamated into a bigger operation, which then often because of commercial imperatives and economies of scale, they need to be bigger so they can justify buying a bigger machine to do this job. And that machine works across a larger area. And if it worked twice that area, well, then it would be twice as efficient and you've got twice as better economies of scale. So you need to get bigger and bigger and bigger again. But the, there's a downside to that is that you lose touch with the individual side of things um, and you're also trying to impose your will upon the natural processes. And that can work, but I think um, one of the things, the bottom line things, is that really nature is much bigger than... Um, us, <laughs> we are we are we are part of the system. We are not we're not the, the gods of the system. And we, um, if if we think that we are controllers of nature, well, then um, we need to perhaps rethink because we look around at the droughts and the floods and the fires and things. These things are big things which happen, and um, we can do things to mitigate them and we can think, do things to manage them. But ultimately, they are still huge forces on the outside which impact upon what we do, um, and it's. Uh, it makes a lot more sense to try and fit in with those things to the best we can. Obviously, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. you can, sometimes they just, you know, <laughs> plenty of examples of really desperately major natural things which happen, which wipe things out. But um, as far as we can, we try and fit in with them and try and adapt ourselves so that we're resilient and sustainable and can actually keep on um, producing what we're trying to produce into the future. And that's yeah. that's, that's one of the, the key things throughout the whole organic industry, I think. Yeah, sure. Well, actually, on on that note, that's probably a good um, sort of segue into as we're moving to wrap up for you to provide, if you'd be so <laughs> kind, Greg, a, um, a, a relevant sort of quote or something that you would really like to share that um, is sort of, um, you know, relevant about what we've been uh, discussing. Yeah. Yeah, well, I guess, yeah. It's, uh, it always puts the pressure on. So when you ask for someone to give a quote, you say, <laughs> <laughs> "Come on, just come out with come out with a pearl of wisdom for us to hear." Um, yeah, come not, on, not always easy. Yeah. Not always easy to find that pearl, but I think it's, it's it's I think we've already said it in a way, and I think it's just a matter of reiterating what's already been said: is that that nature is very large, very big, very powerful. A lot of it is not understood by us still, even though we might think we understand lots of things. There's lots out there which we just don't really know. Um, as, as far as we can, my, my personal philosophy is to try and try and become aware of nature's forces and what it's doing, observe it, learn from it, and try our best to fit in with that, um, because that's probably going to lead us to the most productive and and, um, and and generally harmonious and happiest lifestyle, ultimately, by mm. trying to fit in rather than trying to rule, dominate, and tame nature. Sounds pretty good to me, Greg. I yeah, think that sounds pretty good. Yeah, no. Well, um, on that note too, would you be able to let everyone know about um, about like the best way to get uh, in contact with you? Sure. Yeah. Um, um, your website address and anything else that you'd like to share? 
Sure. Yeah, no, we're, we're fairly easy to find if you've got the right um, Google tool. Um, uh, the, our business name is Mount Roland Hazelnuts. Um, and we're based here, here in uh, Sheffield in Tasmania. And our webpage, if you search for Mount Roland Hazelnuts, you'll probably be taken to two things. One is our webpage, which is our, uh, it's got a, it's quite a comprehensive webpage with all sorts of photographs and information about what we do and how we do it. And that's sort of our, our major business platform. But we also have a Facebook page, which is very active and um, a lot of people enjoy following that as well. So again, the search for Mount Roland Hazelnuts could well take you to our Facebook page and that might be an interesting browse for people as well. So either way from there, you will also be, you have access to obviously emails and contact phone numbers and all the rest of it too. And we're delighted to hear from people. So um, if anyone has an interest in this area and would like to get in touch, I'd encourage them and we'll, we'll welcome your inquiry. Yeah, thanks so much, Greg. It's been absolute pleasure. Really great, uh, really great chat. And um, and I very much appreciate your time um, with the podcast today. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you, so We appreciate the opportunity and uh, wish you all the best with your podcasts. And I hope that they, that continues to be a, a thriving source of activity for you. Yeah, no, thank you. It's, it's, it's about I'm sharing everyone's um, story. So thanks for sharing yours. Um, so with that in mind, that's actually it for today, everyone. Thanks so much for listening into our podcast yet again. Before we go, please leave your feedback as well as any suggestions for any topics you would like us to discuss in future episodes. Thanks again for listening to the Grey Business Podcast and we'll see you again soon. Bye, guys. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Grow Your Business. Have a great day and we'll see you next time here at the Grow Your Business Podcast.